Our New Testament reading today is taken from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 9 to 15. And you can follow along in your pew Bibles. Oh, it's going to be about on page 840 or so. Looks like 836. Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let us pray. Dear Father, we thank you that you call to us, that you tell us to repent and believe the gospel. Encourage us in that, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me begin this morning by telling you how excited I am to have this opportunity to bring today's sermon to you. To preach God's Word is simply a delight. It's one of the things that brings excitement and joy and life and animation and all other words that begin with excitement, all right? Years ago, I took uh, one of those... uh, uh, Career survey things, you know, did you take one maybe in high school, some of you? Nobody's looking like you've ever seen one before. Okay, well, I took one. And it said that my number one thing that I wanted to do was to preach, and my number two thing that I wanted to do was to be a Navy officer. Well, guess what? I'm a Navy chaplain, and I get to do both things. I get to do my very two most favorite things in the world. Right now, I'm a supervisory chaplain, So I'm free on Sundays. Right for you. However, beginning in February, I go to a ship where I'll be preaching every Sunday, maybe two or three times on Sundays. I'll be the Protestant pastor, and uh, that'll keep me busy. But for right now, you get me, and we have one sermon together, all right? Now, I could preach for you a good evangelistic sermon today. We have a great text before us in Mark chapter 1 where Jesus preaches that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand and repent and believe in the gospel. But we've heard several of those lately. Now, the gospel is essential. It is wonderful. It is the basis of all that we do as Christians. But we also have to go beyond just believing the gospel to see how it applies to our daily lives. Once you believe the gospel, what comes next? Once you've walked in the door of the church, what is it that happens next? And you've got to know some things about that because it is important. Now, I've attended church ever since I was born. And I found, as a young person, that all too often the pastor was talking to the grown-ups in the room, and he would have, I'm sure, a wonderful sermon. I don't know, because I sang in the choir from the time I was 10 years old. I sang in the adult choir. I sat up with the choir in the choir loft from the time I was 10 years old. And about at this point in the sermon, 
my grandfather and I would both be snoring. All right? Sleep would come easily to me as I would sit up in the choir loft. And I think that partially that was because of the fact, well, not only was grandfather snoring and you had to sit next to him so you could elbow him every once in a while, but that part isn't important. What's important is that very often what I found was that I'm hearing things at church. Somebody's preaching and they're saying great and important things. But then I'm going to go to school and I'm going to hear something, well, completely different. It's kind of like living in two different universes and you have this cognitive dissonance proving that I did go to school and learn something. You have this cognitive dissonance where you're hearing these two things and it's confusing and it's easier just not to listen to both of them. Grown-ups sometimes, not just young people, but grown-ups can sometimes find it hard to connect the gospel that you hear on Sunday, that great message of the good news of Jesus, with what you read in your newspapers on Monday morning. I'm sure some of you still read newspapers. You may find it hard to connect the gospel with what's going on in your life. You may say, well, it's all well and good that Jesus saves us from our sins, but what's next? What do I do about the rest of the things that happen in my life? What happens when we're on the football field or when we're at work or when we're standing around talking to people at the water cooler? So today, we want to talk about one topic. When you're a Christian, how does that mean that you relate to ecology? How do you relate to the planet? Now, here's the part where young people need to pay attention, just for a moment. Well, for the whole sermon, but if you can, just for a moment. Pay attention, because we're going to talk to you about some of the things that you do as young people out there Monday to Friday and Saturday and all those kinds of things at school. And for the grown-ups in the room, we want to talk about our choices and our votes and the things that we do that impact the land around us and the creatures that live around us. When we begin to think about what resources to use and what responsibilities that we have, we want to think about the Christian and the creation. And our gospel passage today begins with a very familiar passage about the baptism of Jesus. I'm sure at various times in your life you've heard plenty of sermons about that and how Jesus was baptized for us, how he repented for us, how he repented perfectly and all the good things that come from that and we're baptized, we're linked to him. Nod and say, sure, I've heard something about that at some point in my life or not. Okay, so don't. We could talk about the doctrine of the Trinity and how Jesus is the beloved Son and how he's filled with the Holy Spirit and so on. But I feel like you've probably heard that part. What I want to point out to you are the odd details of what happened next. Because after the baptism of Jesus, we have this authoritative word from heaven, you are my Son, you're my beloved. And then the words to which I want to draw your attention this morning. Immediately the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness, says the Pew Bible, or the Spirit impelled him, says the New American Standard, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, says our Pew Bible, or the New American Standard says he was with the wild beasts. I love that translation. It sounds pretty exciting to me. He's out in the wilderness with the wild beasts being 40 days, and he's being tempted by Satan. I can remember a sermon on this subject. I actually do remember some sermons from my younger days. And 
talking, the, the pastor was, or preacher of the day was talking about what this word impelled was about. Because you've got the love of Christ that constrains you, that sort of outside thing. And, and we lived in New York City at the time, and he was talking about how when you're in the subway platform, you just go along with the flow because there's nothing else you can do. Right? You're just carried along by the flow. There's 7 million people and they're all getting off of the E&F train at the Lexington Avenue station and you're going to go with them because you don't have anything else you can do. That's not our word here. What we have here is the idea of this internal sense in which Jesus is cast out. He's thrown out. It's like being a ball thrown out into the wilderness. And the Holy Spirit says, you're going to go out into the wilderness. You, the Son of God, you, the one who's been baptized, you, the one who has this mission from God, you're going to go out in the wilderness and you're going to hang out with the wild beasts for the next 40 days. I assume that means the only shower he got was when it rained. All right? So he's out there wearing his wool outfit and it's hot or cold and disgusting and there he is. Now, we know the rest of the story. As, Jesus, as soon as Jesus comes back from the wilderness, he begins to preach the gospel. But what was he doing out in the wilderness, right? Why was the beloved son, who had clearly come to preach an evangelistic sermon, as soon as he comes back, he says, repent and believe the gospel for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why was he hanging out in the wilderness with the animals, with the wild beasts? Yes, he was being tempted. We know that perfectly well from Matthew and from Luke. But he was also ministering to the creation of God. That is to say, God has created the heavens and the earth and all the stuff in it. And Jesus was out there ministering to the creation. The creation has a role in this story. The creation continues to have a role in this story. Think back to our Genesis passage. Genesis chapter 9, in verses 10 to 17, just that that eight-verse stretch. Not once, not twice. See if I can get my fingers right. Three, four, five, six, seven. Somebody counted that seven times in that passage. God says that the covenant he's making with Noah is not just with Noah, but with all of the animals, all of creation, all the living beasts. I say somebody counted seven because I went back and counted it again just to make sure I hadn't been confused and I counted nine. So there may be nine times or it may be seven, but the point is there's a whole lot of times where God says, Noah, the covenant that I'm making with you is for you and for all of the living stuff, all the living people and for the planet itself. One of those signs that God gives is the rainbow in the sky. When you see that rainbow... It's all about light and refraction and all that cool stuff that God says, this is my symbol that I'm not going to flood you guys out like that ever again. God's covenant is with every living creature, every beast of the earth, and it is with the earth itself. You will recall that the earth was cursed along with Adam and Eve. When Adam took a bite of that piece of fruit, and then tries to hide from God and say, God, it's, it's, it's her fault. And then God says, well, what do you have to say? Well, God, it's the serpent's fault. You made, it, it's all your fault. God says, the ground is going to be cursed because of you. In Genesis, we also learn that God's compassion extended to the animals. 
Not only is the planet cursed on behalf of man, but God says, you know what? Because of the violence of the earth, I'm going to send this flood. But Noah, I want you to take into the ark two of everything. At least two of everything. The clean animals you get seven pairs of. And I want you to keep them alive. After the rain stopped, we're told not just that God remembered Noah, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and the cattle that were with him in the ark. When they exit the ark, God makes his covenant with Noah and with Noah's descendants and with every living creature that is with you, he says. The birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you. God's interest in the creatures of the earth and with the earth itself is unmistakable. Throughout God's dealings with his people, we see that he expects us to be good stewards of the land. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 talk about that. God expects that we treat animals with compassion. Proverbs 12, remember when we were reading through Proverbs. Remember this from Proverbs 12, verse 10. A righteous man has regard for the life of his animal. For the life of his animal. And the land itself suffers when people sin. God himself sends punishment on the land. The prophet Joel wrote this in Joel chapter 1. He says, the harvest of the field is destroyed, the vine dries up, and the fig tree fails, the pomegranate, the palm also, and the apple tree, all the trees of the field dry up. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. And he says this, how the beasts groan. The herds of cattle wander aimlessly because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. When we sin, There is a massive impact. It's not just something that affects you or me as individuals, but the whole world. The Bible also makes clear that the land will share in the redemption that God gives. The Bible makes clear that God receives pleasure and praise from his creation. As we sang Psalm 148 this morning, as we read it together, did you notice all of the tremendous things that God mentions there? The psalmist calls on the sun and the moon and the stars and the fog and the snow and the hail and the hurricanes. Okay, well, he calls it stormy wind, but you get the idea. And he he lists all of these physical things and he says, you know what, you guys need to praise the Lord. And then he lists all kinds of animals and sea creatures. And if you have the old translation, it's got very fanciful words and and all kinds of fun things there that are supposed to praise the Lord. Not just, you know, some technical scientific descriptions, but all sorts of, of wonderful animals. And then it gets to people. And when it lists the people, well, it's old folks and young people, even though I like hymns and they like praise choruses, and even though you may like this or that or the other thing, we all worship God together. There's this huge panoply of things and people and items and elements, and we're all worshiping God together. And Psalm 148 is not the only one that talks about that. Isaiah says, The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. It's okay to clap your hands. I know we don't do that in church, but it's okay. And even the trees get to clap their hands. 
Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. Instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up. And it will be a memorial to the Lord. That's in Isaiah 55. So when you get the servant of the Lord that comes and does all those wonderful things that we read about before Christmas, then you get the the beasts of the field and the trees clapping their hands and the mountains are, are singing and good things are happening. In fact, in describing the salvation of his people, God says to Isaiah, all you beasts of the field, all you beasts in the forest, Come and eat. You know, it's a wonderful thing when you get adopted by an animal. You ever been adopted by an animal? Any cat lovers in the crowd? Sure, some heads are nodding. All right. We've been adopted by a black cat in our neighborhood. It's decided that he lives on our back porch, right? So this cat comes up every day, and first he sits there and looks at us. And then we'll come out and he'll run away. And then after a while, he gets closer, and he gets closer, and we finally say, wow, this cat's not very big. He looks skinny. He must need some food. And so we put some food in the bowl, and the cat says, meow, 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 meow. And it goes on, and eventually the cat thinks he lives in the house, and if you open the door, well, he'll just come right on in. Right? We've been adopted by this cat. Well, the same joy that you have over being chosen by this cat to be the caregiver... That's the way God kind of feels about the entire planet. God says, not just I have a cat, I have a black cat, I have this wonderful cat that has chosen me, but no, God says, I get all the animals, I get all the plants, all these cool things. I've always felt that God has a delight in creation that we sometimes pass over. I think of God as sometimes just kind of just kind of pouring stuff out, you know, kind of like just throwing things out of the bucket saying, "Hey, let's make some red flowers. Let's make some white flowers. Let's make some blue flowers." What do you think? Can we make something tall? Let's make something short. You want to make some big animals? Let's make some small animals. Hey, what do you think? Let's make tigers. I like lions. Elephants are great. How about three different kinds of whales? Nah, let's make more kinds of whales than that. God makes all this stuff and there's this delight in it. And then God not only delights in the animals, He says, come on, I want you to come eat with me. Come be in my house. Come worship me. You can imagine God in this sense of delight with all of His creation. And He looks at it and He says, it's Very good. God has this delight in it and says, I want you to praise me. And the rest of the animals, they have no problem with that. The trees, they have no problem with that. They worship God. They grow. They do exciting things. And God says to Adam and Eve, I want you to worship me. And they say, "Ah, we'll get back to you on that. And there's where sin comes in. But God says that redemption involves not just Adam and Eve, but all these good things. In the letter to the Romans, Paul offers more explanation. He says, The creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So Jesus is out there with a wild beast bringing salvation to the creation. So you see, that's why we have some idea why Jesus was with the wild beasts. As he launched his ministry, the thing that would result in the redemption of the world, the redemption of both, both man and creation, Jesus takes time to be with the wild beasts. He doesn't just say, you know, I'm just going to go hang out with people. He says, no, I'm going to be with the whole creation. Perhaps it was to announce to them that their salvation was at hand. You see, Jesus 
He wasn't wasting his time with the animals. He was expressing the very heights and depths of the love of God. He was expressing the interest of God in the whole created world. It's interesting to me how in Christian history, revival is very often associated with concern for the rest of creation. When people start to get interested in God, we start to get interested in the world that God has made. I'm going to tell you some stories now. They're just stories, okay? They're just stories. Don't throw any rocks at me, all right? But they're fun stories. Back in the 6th century A.D., we're talking the late 500s, right? There was an Ireland, and the Irish can tell really good stories, right? They don't have to kiss the Blarney Stone to have good stories. There was a saint in Ireland named St. Kevin. And St. Kevin, he was a real person. But the stories they tell about St. Kevin, well, they're probably a little fiction, okay? But anyway, St. Kevin lived in the midst of lots of pagans. And St. Kevin had come there to preach the gospel. And he's preaching to people and people are responding and so on. And one of the stories told about St. Kevin is that he knelt down to pray. And as he prayed, he, he held his hands open. And a bird came. And the bird built a nest in his hand because he's praying so long. And not only does the bird build a nest in his hand, but, but the mama bird lays her eggs in the nest. This is a good story, okay? They lay the eggs in the nest. And St. Kevin, he continues to hold that bird's nest. He continues to pray for 40 days. Hmm, sounds like a familiar story here. For 40 days, he holds on to that nest. And at the end of the 40 days, they hatch, they fledge, and they fly away. Now, I'm not sure Kevin really held the birds in his hand for 40 days, but the point of the story, the thing that they're trying to communicate is that when you love God, you love the world that God has made. And there's this response to it. Another story they tell about St. Kevin is that an angel came to him and pointed out a place where they could build a beautiful monastery. They were uh, the evangelists. There were a bunch of monks. And they picked this wonderful place, and it was going to be spectacular. And the angel describes all the people that are going to come be there, and there's going to, this is going to be the biggest monastery in all of Ireland. And, and St. Kevin says, how are we going to build this? And he says, don't worry, the angels will build it for you, and we'll move the mountain, and we'll change the valley, and we'll make this really nice. And says the story, St. Kevin says, no, We'll go build the monastery somewhere else. No need to make all the animals move just for us to have a place to live. His concern for the animals. I'm sure that you know stories about St. Francis of Assisi, right? Sure you do. Okay, I see one head, right? You can respond. It's all right. St. Francis of Assisi, wonderful guy. He preaches. Involved in lots of revival there in Italy in the 13th century. Involved in all kinds of really interesting stuff. He tries to go off and be an evangelist to the Middle East. He tries to go visit the Muslims, but that never works out for him. So he becomes an evangelist to, you ready? The birds. And the story is told that St. Francis and his companions, they're going along and he sees this big flock of birds and he's thinking about these kinds of passages in the Bible that we're talking about. And he says, you know, nobody ever preaches to the birds. And so he calls the birds in and he says, y'all sit down and be quiet and listen. 
and says the story. They sit down, they're quiet, and they listen. And he preaches to them. And at the end of the sermon, he, he blesses them, and he walks through the crowd of, of birds, and he lays his hands upon them, and then they, then they fly away after that. The story is told of St. Francis that there was a village, a town called Gubbio. And Gubbio was being harassed by this wolf. And St. Francis says, you know, we're not going to put up with this wolf harassing this town anymore. And he goes out into the wilderness where the wolf lives and he takes some people with him. But they all quit and they go back into the city because it's too scary. They don't want to be out there with the wolf. And Francis finally finds the wolf and the wolf begins to charge at him. And Francis says, no. He tells them in the name of Jesus that the wolf must not harass these people anymore. And the wolf lies down at his feet and Francis begins to preach to this wolf and somehow or other the wolf's converted. Okay, it's a story. And, and they shake hands and they go back into town together and St. Francis and the wolf and the people of Gubbio, they make a covenant one with the other. And the wolf promises not to eat the people and the people promise to feed the wolf and everybody's happy and St. Francis is glad and the kingdom of God goes forward and you have this peace of God and good things are happening, all right? What's the point of all those stories, other than that they're fun stories? I'm not sure that Francis and the wolf made a pact with each other, but it's a good story, all right? Now, what we learn from this is that there is that interest that Christians have in the world that God has made, that when the gospel goes forth, it's not just people who are changed, but the whole world, that things happen all around us because of that preaching of the gospel. And I think that's what those ancient stories are trying to tell you because they're fun stories and everybody likes to listen to stories. Right? So what can we learn from this about how we regard our planet, God's creation? What is it that a follower of Jesus can do with the wilderness or with the earth? Well, the first thing we learn is that God has given us creation to use it. All the various translations in the Bible use words like dominion to rule over the planet in Genesis 1. I think that uh, Andy used the word pinnacle. We're the pinnacle of creation. We get to use the planet, all right? All of us who are humans have a role to play in ruling over creation. We have basic needs for food and for clothing, and the world that God created provides these things. Once the temptation was over, Jesus went back to town, and I'm sure he had a nice lunch. All right, and then he had a nice dinner, and the next day he probably had breakfast. All right, it's okay to do those things. You can even drive to church. It's okay. You can use the oil and the gas. You can use the metals. In fact, one of the descriptions that Moses uses when he's trying to sell the land of Israel to the Israelites, he says they've got hills there where you can go dig stuff up. All right? There's things you can use there. It's okay. We can grow crops and we can catch fish. For some of us, catching fish is more important than other things. All right? Other people, it might be hunting deer. Those are all okay things. All right? I happen to be very glad on a cold day that we get to wear clothes. All right? I don't like being cold. But that is not all. If that's all that we see in the stories in the Bible, then we are very sadly limited indeed. Because the second thing is that God has given us charge to take care of his planet. We have a responsibility to be God's stewards of this planet. We do not own this planet. We manage it for God. So while, yes, you can make lunch and you can wear clothes and we can turn on the lights and we can build buildings and we can do all those fun things, we have to do it that we're managers 
for someone else. We have to conserve resources that do not belong to us. We're just renting the place out. And as somebody in the military that moves every two years, I've got that part figured out, right? The owner is God. When we litter the planet, when we trash up the place, when we pollute and ruin the planet, we are trashing God's creation. And let me suggest that just as you don't want somebody messing with your stuff, God doesn't want people messing with his stuff either. God doesn't want us to destroy the planet that he's made. He's made us managers, not owners. So students, if at your school they have an Earth Day celebration and they want you to participate, fine, go right ahead. Just realize the planet is not divine, it's not eternal, it's not our mother. All right? God is our father. If you want to join the Coast Guard, that's okay. You've been listening to the advertisements for the Coast Guards about how you don't want to do that. Okay, you're a CB, that's all right. You, but you listen to the Coast Guard advertisements and they're talking about how you're protecting the environment. You want to go protect the environment? Fine, that's great. You want to go be like Laura Lee and be a habitat steward? That's fine. You can do all kinds of fun things. Just realize the earth is not divine. It's a creature of God just as we are. But being a caretaker is not all there is either. If we see only that, we are still very sadly limited indeed. For there is a third thing that we need to learn, and this is one we often miss. We and all of creation are here to worship God together. We and all of creation worship God. You notice in Psalm 148 as we listed all of those great things that are supposed to worship God. You see, the call to worship is not just for a hundred or so people in the First Presbyterian Church of Biloxi, Mississippi. It's for all of the planet to worship the Lord. And not only that, but God uses the rest of creation, the stuff around us to encourage us to worship him. The marvels and the wonders of the world that we see should encourage us to worship God. To go back to St. Francis, he could spend an entire day just watching the honeybees do whatever it is that honeybees do and using that to marvel at the wonders of God, of the, the way that God's mind works that he can create honeybees that do all of those cool things. When we see the power of God on the, on the sea, it moves us to worship God. One of the great things that I love about being a sailor, one of the things that I enjoy about being in the Navy, you get to go out at sea. And out there you see the dolphins and you see the whales and you see the birds and you see real darkness. You don't get any darkness in town. But, all right, CBs don't see this. But the rest of us sailors do. We're out there, way out there in the dark, and you see things that you never see in town. And it just makes you go, Wow! Lord, what a wonderful world you've made. Thank you for creating it this way. It brings joy to my heart. At the, at the evening time, there's a song that we used to sing about day is dying in the West. I won't sing for you like the pastor did last week. Uh, but you know the song about day is dying in the West, heaven is touching earth with rest, stay and linger while the evening sets its lamps alight. Holy, holy, holy. Nobody knows that song but me. Okay. Well, I go sing that song at, in the evening time out at sea as you just see the glory and the grace of God out there. 
The animals and plants of this world, the mountains and the valleys, the streams, the creeks, the places where you can go kayaking, the places where you can go hiking, the places where you grow crops and all of those wonderful things are all there. Not just so we can have substances to eat or manufacture, but they're there as fellows in creaturehood who inspire us to worship. St. Francis, as I say, could spend an entire day in worship of God just contemplating the honeybee. So, Christian, here's the upshot of the thing. When you repent and believe the gospel, you also have a new relationship to the rest of God's creation. So use the creation. That's okay. But take care of it. Let it inspire you as you see how intricately and wonderfully it's made, so that you, like the rest of God's creation, worship and enjoy God for all the wonders that he's made. And that, I think, is what our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was doing with the wild beasts after he was baptized. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Dear Father, it's a great and wonderful thing to think of our Savior Christ walking on this earth, being with the animals, being there to teach us and to do great things. Lord, we pray that our hearts would be set on fire with the love that you have for us. Encourage us, Lord. Help us to see the wonders that you've done. Help us, Lord, to respond to you with faith, with hope, and with love. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.